Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Today's episode is brought to you by The Gallery. Based out of New York, The Gallery is a curated collection of photographs from around the world. With us not being able to travel right now because of COVID, this is a great way to bring a piece of the world to you. All prints are made from 100% recycled aluminum, giving your wall that gallery finish. Right now, the gallery is offering Always Time for True Crime listeners 15% off their purchase by using the code 15OFF. That's the number, 15OFF. So go to thegallery.com, that's T-H-E-G-A-L-R-Y.com, so your wall will never be boring again. I'm also going to put that link in my show notes, so head on over and check out their art. It's really awesome, you guys. Now let's get back to the show. Hello, true crime lovers. And welcome to another episode of Always Time for True Crime. Today, I'm going to be telling you the story of a woman who was incredibly caring, patient, and giving, and who did not deserve to be killed in the cold-blooded way that she was. This episode is about the murder of Becky Klein. Rebecca Klein was born April 4, 1974, to parents Marilyn and Jeffrey, in Streamwood, Illinois, just about an hour outside of Chicago. She also had an older sister named Melanie, and the whole family was very close with one another. She would apparently talk to her mom and sister on the phone every single day, if not twice a day. For the rest of the episode, I'm gonna call her Becky, because that's what her family and friends called her. Becky was a very caring person whose goal was to help people. She had a degree in recreational therapy from Illinois State University and worked as the director of a company that provided services, programs, and transportation for seniors and those with disabilities. She worked incredibly hard and in 2005, she actually created a daycare program and facility for these groups. In 2007, Becky was a 32-year-old living in Villa Park, Illinois. 
Villa Park is a suburb of Chicago, and in 2017, it was actually rated number eight on the best places to raise a family in America. It's also said to be a very welcoming neighborhood, which was important to Rebecca because she was openly gay. She lived with her 28-year-old girlfriend, Nicole Abu Sharif, whom she had been dating for seven years. And even though the two couldn't get married because of gay marriage being illegal in the States at that time, they were just as committed. They had exchanged commitment rings with one another, and their families didn't think of the two as just dating. They thought of them as a permanent couple. It's said that the two women even talked about fostering or adopting children. They had actually been friends before beginning a relationship. The two met at the nonprofit company that Becky worked at. Nicole would do deliveries for the company and more physical work, and the two started hanging out more and more. Then at a Christmas party in 2000, the woman's friendship turned into something romantic. Everyone said the two got along really well, Maybe because they were pretty opposite. Becky was the extroverted, bubbly, outgoing one. A little bit more of a girly girl. And Nicole was a bit more shy and introverted and very tomboy. But the two's opposite personalities complemented each other. On the morning of Friday, March 16th, 2007, Becky's girlfriend, Nicole, got a call from Becky's work around 11.30 a.m., informing her that Becky had never showed up. Nicole was actually still sleeping because she actually wasn't working at this time. She was on disability for a back injury. So she composed herself, got out of bed, and went out to look for Becky. Before she went to look, Nicole called Becky's mom, Marilyn, and asked if she had seen or heard from Becky that morning. Marilyn told her that she hadn't, so Nicole told her that she was going to go look for Becky and that she would keep her updated. Nicole noticed that Becky's company work van that she used to transport her patients was missing from their driveway. So maybe something had happened to her on her way to work. Nicole started walking down the street and saw Becky's van parked further down the street, maybe about a block away from the house. Nicole approached the van and saw the doors had been left open and the keys still in the ignition. But there was no sign of Becky. On the front seat was Becky's backpack. However, it was empty and it appeared the contents of her bag had actually been thrown onto the floor. So Nicole immediately called police and told the operator that her friend is missing and that she just found her van outside. It was a bit strange to me that she called her her friend instead of girlfriend or partner. But I have to assume that in 2007, being gay came with its fair share of discrimination and disrespect. So maybe she thought police would have a negative bias to the case if she said she was gay. I, of course, have no idea, but that's kind of how I justified it. After the police tell her they're on their way, Nicole called Becky's family to come over and help search. Becky's family was very supportive of her being gay, and the clients treated Nicole like their own. So they were all pretty close, too. 
Police arrived at the home just before 2 p.m. and immediately started looking for any kind of clue to suggest maybe Becky ran away or maybe someone had something against her. Becky's friends and family are sure that she's going to show up any minute and have some kind of explanation. But she doesn't. While police continue to canvass the home and interview those closest to her, the rest of the friends and family hand out missing person flyers around the neighborhood. Her disappearance is released to the media, and I actually realized when I was reading the article that the newspaper had released back in 2007, they say, quote, Becky was last seen the morning of the 16th by her roommate. So, again, kind of interesting how they're dodging the word girlfriend or partner. And again, I'm not sure if the media said that or maybe... Maybe Nicole used the word roommate, but I just thought it was kind of interesting that maybe the media was too scared to say girlfriend. In her interview, Nicole recalls the night before Becky went missing. Nicole had been sick with a cold and had just stayed home all night while Becky went out for dinner with her sister, Melanie. Nicole says she was asleep when Becky came home, but she did remember Becky getting out of bed and telling her that she was going to work. Then, back at the house, police get their first clue. They find Becky's phone sitting on the ledge of the basement window. And now her family is really panicked because Becky would have never left somewhere without her phone. Next, a neighbor calls in with a tip. After hearing that Becky had gone missing, they told police that they had seen a dark-colored van sitting outside of the women's house the night before Becky disappeared. They weren't sure if anyone was actually in the car, but they did think that it had stayed parked there all night. So now police are wondering if this wasn't an opportunistic carjacking, but an actual planned attack. When they asked Nicole about the car, however, she says that her friend Rose had been drinking nearby and was too drunk to drive home, so she'd actually left her car parked outside of Nicole's house around midnight. But Nicole had already told investigators that she was asleep by the time Becky got home. And that was before midnight. With this, she modifies her story and says that she had woken up when Rose came to the house. And it's only a small modification, but police start to get a little bit suspicious of Nicole changing her story. Things get even worse when the investigators searching the house call the detectives interviewing Nicole. While searching the garage, investigators stumbled upon Nicole's 1966 Mustang. It was her prized possession. At first, everything seemed normal about it. In fact, it even had a layer of dust on top, so it looked like it hadn't been driven in a while. But then they noticed a few handprints in dust around the trunk of the car. Although they didn't have a key to the trunk, one of the CSI team actually had a Mustang themselves and knew that if you took out one of the back speakers, you could peer into the trunk. So they took out the speaker and they saw a torso. On March 17th, they confirmed to the media that the body of Rebecca Klein had been found just 24 hours after she went missing. Not only had they found the body, she had also been brutally murdered. 
After detectives had peeked into the trunk and saw the torso, they scoured the house for trunk keys and eventually found them. When they opened the trunk, it was even worse than what they could have imagined. Becky's hands and feet had been bound with duct tape. Her mouth was gagged and a bandana had covered her eyes. A plastic garbage bag had been tightly secured around her head with duct tape, leading investigators to believe that she had been asphyxiated. The strange thing is, though, is that there was absolutely no defensive wounds on Becky. And you'd think that before she was bound, she would have fought her killer. Upon the discovery of Becky's body, Nicole is immediately their number one suspect. So detectives play a little trick on her. Before telling her that they had discovered Becky's body, they asked her for the keys to the trunk, even though they actually already had them. Nicole plays right into it because she tells investigators she had lost the keys years ago. They of course know this is a lie because they found the keys in the house and have since discovered Becky's body in the trunk. So now they've caught Nicole in a lie, which only makes her more suspicious. When confronted, Nicole adamantly denies ever hurting Becky and sticks to her story. Nicole says she has no idea how Becky's body ended up in her trunk. She even mentions the fact that she is on disability for hurting her back. So how would she have carried Becky's body into the trunk with her bad back? While the interview with Nicole is pretty much going nowhere, police go ahead and seize her computer and phone. They also begin looking for that woman named Rose that apparently had stopped by the house to drop her car off on the night of March 15th. And they find her easily. 19-year-old Rose Sodaro is brought in for questioning and she tells investigators the exact same story. She had been too intoxicated to drive and had simply dropped her car off at Nicole's house. But here's the catch. Rose apparently didn't even know that Becky had been found dead in the back of Nicole's trunk. And once she heard that, she broke down. Upon hearing of Becky's murder, Rose tells police everything. First of all, Rose and Nicole had been more than just friends. They had actually been dating for about a year after meeting online. The two women really both liked cars and were able to bond over that. And here's where both Rose and the police find out how twisted Nicole really is. According to Rose, who, remember, is 19 and was, you know, young and naive, Nicole had told her that she was a firefighter hero who had saved lives in 9-11. She even said that she had been honored for her bravery. And this is a complete lie. She was never even a firefighter at all. But it gets worse. Nicole also told Rose that she was dying from liver cancer. And for one of their first dates, Nicole asked Rose to come with her to pick out her casket because apparently she was going to die soon. Nicole also claims that her brother is also dying. So apparently both she and her brother were dying. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. 
Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And finally, the last lie. Rose knew Becky only as Nicole's roommate and didn't know they were actually life partners. To me, pretending to be a decorated hero from 9-11 and also saying that you're dying, I think that really just shows how mentally ill Nicole is. So once Rose realizes, one, Becky is dead, and two, Nicole had lied about everything, she tells police that Nicole had asked her to lie to them. Turns out on the Thursday night, the day before the police were informed of Becky's disappearance, Rose and Nicole had been out at the bars. Around 9.30, the two women met up and hung out. They met at a restaurant before and then went bowling. And police would later confirm this through eyewitnesses and text messages. The women then returned to Nicole's house. Rose notes that when they came home, Becky was not there. She also tells investigators that she saw a gun on Nicole's nightstand. And remember this, because it's going to be important later. But here's the big shocker. Once the two women returned to Nicole's house, Nicole told Rose she had a big surprise for her and hands her the keys to the 1966 Mustang. She tells Rose she wants her to have it and drive it whenever and have free reign. And since Rose loves cars, she was really excited. Little did she know there was a dead body in the trunk. It's unknown why Nicole would try to give the Mustang away. Maybe she was hoping Rose would take the car away and then police wouldn't have a chance to search it. Some say that maybe she wanted to frame Rose. But she also claimed to be in love with Rose, so I don't know if that theory really makes sense. After Nicole gives Rose the key, Rose slept over and left the next morning. Again, she only knew Becky as a roommate, so no alarm bells were going off at this point. Now police have Nicole in custody, but they haven't officially charged her with anything yet. Even though it's really not looking good for her. They have her lying to Rose, they have her lying to Becky by being in an affair, and they of course have the fact that Becky was found in Nicole's car. But what they don't have is any physical evidence. While police wait for the forensics from the body to come back, they take a look at Nicole's phone records and see that she had a lot of contact with a guy named Robert Edwards on the night of March 15th. This guy Robert was actually Nicole's former boss at one of her workplaces, and apparently the two would do drugs together a lot. When they interview him, he at first lied to police, telling them that he was out getting a haircut that night. However, later, after police confront him with the phone records, he changes his story and admits that he was at Nicole's house that evening, but he was just there for drugs. Then he tells them that he was actually too intoxicated to remember what happened that night. Either way, he's sure that he had nothing to do with Becky's murder. I think that at the time, police were trying to see if he was an accomplice. But since they really have nothing to link him to the murder, they released him. 
but they continued to keep him in the back of their minds. Then the forensic evidence came back. Nicole's entire palm print was found on the bag around Becky's head. Since it was an entire palm print, it was likely that this print came from Nicole pressing her entire hand on Becky's head when she was stuffing her body into the trunk. They were also able to confirm that the duct tape found on Becky's body was from a roll inside the house, and Nicole's fingerprints were found all over it. Lastly, the bandana used to blindfold Becky belonged to Nicole and was also covered in her DNA. With all of this, police were able to formally charge Nicole with first-degree murder on March 21, 2007, not even a week after Becky's murder. While police began to piece the puzzle together and prosecutors build their case for a trial, neighbors of the couple were shocked to hear about the murder charge. Many were convinced that they had gotten the wrong person, as they had never even seen Nicole and Becky fight. They seemed like the perfect couple, very much in love. Nicole's family stuck by her, as her father was sure his daughter wasn't a killer. A few of her friends and family actually suggested that her friend, Robert Edwards, was the real killer, even though there was no real evidence to link him to the crime. I'm sorry, but they have physical evidence and motive from Nicole, and they have nothing to even hold Robert Edwards on, so to me, it's pretty clear who the killer is. But I guess it's hard to accept that your daughter and friend is capable of something like that. The murder charges especially took the Klein family by surprise. They thought Nicole was part of their own family. She was someone they cared for, someone their daughter loved. And despite one weird spat five years earlier, the two really didn't have fights and there were no warning signs. This weird spat that I'm talking about happened in 2002. Becky had told her sister Melanie that she was thinking of breaking up with Nicole. But when she had tried to do that, Nicole had threatened to kill herself. This is a big warning sign for me because I think it shows how Nicole was comfortable with manipulating Becky. I mean, Becky was such a caring person and loved to help people, so I feel like Nicole knew that Becky was the type of girl to feel sympathy for that. If Nicole was seriously contemplating suicide, that's of course a very sad thing, but she should get help, not use it against your partner. On April 22, 2009, Nicole went on trial for the murder of Becky Klein and pleaded not guilty. The prosecution story went like this. Nicole wanted to be free with her new lover, Rose. It was also newly discovered that Nicole was to inherit $400,000 in insurance money from Becky's death. The prosecution argued the motive was a combination of love and money. On the night of March 15, 2007, Becky arrived home around 7.20 p.m. after having an early dinner with her sister, Melanie. Prosecutors believe she was killed shortly after returning home, as Becky's autopsy proved that the food in her stomach had not had time to digest yet, meaning she was killed shortly after eating. When Nicole met up with Rose at 9.30pm, Becky was already dead, which was why Rose didn't see her at the house. 
Becky's sister Melanie had also apparently tried to call her that night around 8 p.m., but the call had gone unanswered, further suggesting that she was already dead. It also turns out that Nicole's Mustang was having an issue with the transmission, and for whatever reason, she couldn't put her car in reverse, meaning she couldn't have driven the car out of the garage, which was probably why she had never disposed of Becky's body. Because let's be real, you gotta be really stupid to leave your murder victim's body in your own car. It seemed like the prosecution had it all figured out, but the defense presented one problem. If Nicole had killed Becky, how did she get Becky into the trunk of her car with her back injury? There was no way Nicole would have been able to lift Becky into the car. It's possible that Robert Edwards, the guy who told police he had gone to the house for drugs, had helped in putting Becky's body in the trunk. But then again, there's no evidence to suggest that, and his DNA wasn't found anywhere on the body, tape, bag, or bandana. The prosecution had their own answer as to how Becky ended up in the trunk, one that didn't involve Robert Edwards. Remember how Rose had seen a gun on Nicole's night table the night that Becky was murdered? Well, they believe that Nicole used that gun to control Becky. She threatened to shoot her if she didn't get into the back of the trunk. Meaning, even more disturbingly, Becky probably got in herself, hoping not to be shot. I can't even imagine the terror Becky felt in her last moments of life. The defense argued that Robert Edwards should have been looked into as a suspect. They presented the idea that maybe Becky had walked in on Robert doing drugs at their home that night, and afraid she was going to rat him out to police, he killed her in an intoxicated frenzy. But like I said, his DNA wasn't found at the crime scene at all. So I feel like at the most, he may have helped put the body in the trunk, but I really don't think he killed her. It seems likely that Nicole was like, hey Robert, I'll give you some drugs if you help me out. And he probably did. That's my guess. However, it's important to note that Robert Edwards has never officially been linked to this murder. I mean, he was later found guilty of child pornography charges, as well as being charged for instruction of justice for lying to police. So he's in no way a good person. But there's no proof he partook in this murder. Police also believe that Rose Sodaro had no knowledge of Becky's murder. In fact, Rose even testified for the prosecution at trial, telling the jury all about Nicole's lies and inconsistencies. On May 5th, 2009, after 13 hours of deliberation, the jury of six men and six women announced they had found Nicole Abu Sharif guilty of first-degree murder and concealment of a homicidal death. But the jury did not believe there was enough evidence to prove premeditation, which would later impact Nicole's sentence. Although Nicole had showed no emotion throughout the entire trial, she cried when the verdict was announced. Nicole's family and friends were shocked that she was found guilty and said anyone who looked at the facts should have seen innocence. And again, I know they're probably just trying to cope with it, but how did they think that Nicole was innocent? Even the defense said that they felt good going into the jury deliberation. Like, how did you think you had that case? 
Despite what I think, many of her friends and family continue to stand by her. To the jury, though, it was clear. The jury foreman told the Chicago Tribune that, quote, the physical evidence was overwhelming, unquote. In July 2009, the judge sentenced Nicole Abu Sharif to 50 years in prison. Since the jury did not see evidence that it was premeditated, Nicole will be eligible for parole after serving her time. If it were premeditated, the judge would have had the option of keeping her in there for life. She is currently serving her sentence at the Dwight Correctional Center in Nevada Township, Illinois. If she does ever get out, she will be in her late 70s. In 2011, Nicole Abu Sharif attempted to appeal her conviction, arguing that texts between her and Rose shouldn't have been admitted into evidence because her lies about the firefighter stuff and the cancer made her look like a bad person and a liar. Well, I mean, you're not wrong, Nicole. Nicole in her defense requested that her conviction be reversed and that she should have a new trial. However, her appeal was denied and her conviction upheld. For the Klein family, the pain will never go away. Becky's sister Melanie says one of the hardest parts was that Nicole was someone they trusted, someone they treated like their own family. The daycare program that Becky had created was renamed in her honor and is now known as the Becky Klein Adult Care Program. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Always Time for True Crime. But stay tuned because I got another podcast recommendation for you. This week, I'm telling you guys to check out the podcast Anxious and Afraid. The two hosts, Shauna and Abby, are both fun and knowledgeable about their topics that range from true crime to paranormal stuff to conspiracy theories. Here's a promo so you can get a little taste. Hey guys, I'm Abby. And I'm Shauna, and we're the host of a podcast called Anxious and Afraid. Do you love deep dives into true crime? The paranormal? Strange history? Conspiracies? Well, so do we, and each week we take turns surprising each other with whatever anxiety-inducing subject we are obsessed with that week. Tune in each week to hear Shauna mispronounce words. Um, the guys on the lookout apparently asked for binoculars. Did I say that right? So the photos showed him and his colleague entertaining... <laughs> Wait, am I saying that wrong? Yes! <laughs> and listen in as Abby constantly asks too many questions. I oh, was wait. about to ask you a lot of questions. And I'm glad that you interrupted me. Continue. <laughs> I would have told you to shut up. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what Stop I'm trying to Stop quizzing me. Okay, okay, you know, I did enough research. <laughs> Let me just tell the damn story. Jesus. Continue. Episodes drop every Tuesday, available wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also find us at our website, anxiousandafraid.com. We're always looking for new friends, so don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thanks again for listening and continue to support indie podcasts.